You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 16th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. Coming up today... I do think that there has been some sort of like revolutionary popes in the past. Things didn't necessarily always end well for them. My guests Marie Leconte and Alex von Tunzelman will discuss the Vatican's slow shift towards modernity. And as we pick further through the day's news, we'll look at a decision to allow cameras into high-profile court cases in England and Wales. And then we'll wonder why some people think it's worth spending half a million quid to hear this. It's easy to write a knee-jerk reaction story about uproar. It's far harder to explain why. The latest opinion from our editorial floor on why the media's coverage of outrage should usually be ingested with a pinch of salt. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined by Alex von Tunzelman, the historian, author and screenwriter, and Marie Leconte, the political journalist and also author. For an unprecedented two days running, our news panel is going to look at the internal machinations of the Vatican. Yesterday, we addressed the apparent disagreement between the current and previous Pope over taking a more flexible approach to priestly celibacy. Today, we'll look at an apparent sidle away from another cornerstone of the Church's thinking, which has long held that while women may have their uses, they're not really cut out for senior executive office. However, Pope Francis has for the first time named a woman to the Vatican's Secretariat of State, which handles the Church's diplomatic relations. She is Francesca Di Giovanni, a long-serving Vatican lawyer. Um, Marie, I'm never quite sure how to react when a somewhat slow-moving institution uh, makes a concession of this sort. Do we extend to them the, the round of applause or the slow hand clap? I would probably go for the slow hand clap. Like, I, I do feel like people saying that this is basically like a big victory, a massive move. Is it? Is it really to <laughs> like the, the singular woman really to a job? You know that that's not that is relatively senior, but is not kind of you know hugely important either. Like, I'm not. I'm not that impressed. I'll be honest. And Alex and you. I mean, a, a similar question, I guess. It's always, and we've seen it a lot in the coverage of this regarding you know, re- describing. Pope Francis as progressive. I mean, these things are always relative, but right. but but seriously. Yeah, I mean, it's within an institution that really does move at a glacial pace over the centuries um, and not always in a forward direction um, or progressive direction at all. Um, I mean, you know, good, I suppose. But yes, <laughs> I, I, do, I think we're still quite a long way off, say, a woman becoming Pope, for instance. Mm. Uh, yeah, but good, I suppose. I'm, I'm glad we didn't hang out the bunting and organise fireworks uh, <laughs> f- f- for this one. I mean, the, the fact is, though, well, I assume it's the fact I, I've never been Pope and it's it's unlikely I will be asked for a variety of reasons. But I suspect one of the things you do have to take into consideration that trivial relatively though this seems there's going to be a significant noisy cohort of his flock who are going to find some way to be outraged by this oh probably and obviously there's a huge sort of like quite conservative presence within the church and within the vatican so i do think that you know 
Pope Francis could not have just sort of like turned up and said, by the way, you know, from now on, half our workforce at the Vatican will be women. Um, I don't think, you know, it could have worked like that to be realistic. I mean, they can't can't sack him. He could. (laughs) (laughs) I suppose, yes, he could, you know, whether that would be a good decision uh, for the future of the Catholic Church or his own future. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but but no, so I do think you know may, maybe actually we're being uh, a bit too snarky, and maybe actually it is a step in the right direction, but also the only pace at which they can realistically move. Uh, well, on that thought, Alex, and again, it's a, it's a wider question which which gets raised by things like this, which is that are we still, uh, for all that it is now the year of our Lord twenty twenty, and this is supposed well supposed to be an age of reason, enlightenment, and so forth? Are we still generally actually too indulgent of any sort of ultra conservative backwardness when it is presented as religion? I mean, if this was any sort of other major bureaucratic or governmental organisation, this would be regarded as outrageous. Yes, and I mean, it's a kind of odd status that this situation has because, of course, the Catholic Church as a church can really do what it likes. I mean, if people want to join it and be conservative, then that's really their business as far as I can see. Religion's a private matter. But it is also, in terms of the Vatican, it is a state. Um, It is obviously has power that extends far beyond the borders of that state as well, particularly in parts of the world, in Latin America, in sort of Southeast Asia, various places that have large, you know, Catholic Christian populations, parts of Africa as well. Um, this has a huge influence and in policy. So it's a bit different from a sort of regular religion, <laughs> you know, in terms of its institutional power. Um, on the other hand, it's complicated to say whether that makes it accountable because the structure of religion is not a democracy. Um, I mean, people, of course, are free to leave it should they not like what it's doing. Um, and there are sort of internal battles over it. I mean, we've really seen that with, uh, uh, not to refer to the cinematic version even, but the two popes uh, <laughs> that are sort of currently hanging around, uh, you know, and, and uh, Ratzinger, the former uh, Pope Benedict, you know, has certainly not been quiet about his more conservative feelings in the face of these, you know, enormous reforms, um, <laughs> like possibly thinking that regional priests should be allowed to marry, um, which obviously some people do find very threatening. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's sort of it's a complicated balance. And I sort of feel that in a way outsiders like me, I mean, I'm not a Catholic. Um, there's a limited extent to which I, I mean, I can have opinions, I can talk about it. But, you know, at some level, it's none of my business. Hey, Marie, is there is there a thing as well? And I'm this is the second question I'm going to put, which may sound like I'm, I'm vaguely sympathetic to Pope Francis. I mean, it is a strange job he has. But is there a thing with any church, like, I guess, other institutions which were founded centuries ago and have somehow persisted like royal families, that if you modernise them past a certain point, you kind of end up undermining the point of them? God, that, that, that feels like that's a very tough question. Do you have 46 hours to answer that? Um, I'm not. That's. I, I'm not entirely sure what to say to that. I, I suppose that again. You know, I don't think that. Like, I. I do think that there has been sort of like revolutionary popes um, in the past. Things didn't necessarily always end well for them. So, <laughs> you know, so I think that, that there's definitely a point in kind of moving at a slow pace. And again, you know, I think when you compare what Pope Francis actually has done so far with the way it's been covered, you know, it has very much been covered. Like, you know, he's this sort of like great, so you know, basically sort of like social justice warrior. Um, when again, you know, like he's done things like appointing one woman um so, so I, I i do think he's probably actually playing it quite well alex von tunzelman and marie leconte will have more from both of you in just a moment but first here is monocle's daniel Bache with some of the other stories we're following today 
Thank you, Andrew. Iran's president, Hassan Rouhani, says his country is enriching more uranium than before it agreed to a nuclear deal with world powers back in 2015. Iran has gradually scaled back its commitments under the accord in retaliation to the Donald Trump administration's withdrawal from the pact back in 2018. Pro-government forces in Venezuela have attacked a convoy of political opponents outside the country's parliament. Opposition leader Juan Guaido has claimed the violence had forced him to transfer a planned meeting to a building on the outskirts of the Venezuelan capital, Caracas. And today's Monocle Minute reports that Sacramento is now home to the largest on-demand public transit system in the U.S. Smart Ride allows the city's passengers using their smartphones to hail a bus to a nearby pickup location. And for more on this story, do subscribe to our Daily Digest. And you can do so by heading over to monocle.com minute. Those are some of the headlines we're following. Now back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Marie LeConte and Alex von Tunzelman. Uh, let's persist with the theme of secretive and old-fashioned institutions edging nervously into the sunlight and indeed the future. For the first time, television cameras will be permitted into Crown Courts in England and Wales. Trials will not be televised as such. The broadcasts will be limited to the sentencing remarks of judges in criminal cases of significant public interest. So courtroom sketch artists need not seek alternative employment just yet. Um, Alex, in general, the televising of criminal proceedings, is it a good idea? In, in general, I think, I, you know, I've heard mixed views from the people that are actually involved, you know, lawyers, bar counsel and so on. I mean, I I think actually, you know, and in the limited context, this is about sentencing remarks. It's not about the whole trial. So everybody's cautious to try and avoid a sort of OJ Simpson spectacle. And I think that's right to try and avoid... Um, I actually think this could be quite a good thing on the basis that, you know, what we quite often hear um, is simply the verdict in any given um, trial, you know, especially high profile ones. And there often are sentencing remarks which really make a lot more sense of mm. the verdict if you read them, but they don't get the kind of publicity often that the simple verdict does. So you often get people come out with, oh, my God, it's an incredibly light sentence or, oh, you know, all this has happened. And actually, without the context, it's sometimes quite difficult, I think, to communicate that. So I think it could be quite good potentially for public communication to actually, you know, in the public understanding of the law and engagement with the law to put sentencing remarks out there. Um, I know there are some reservations in the Bar Council about it leading to attacks on individual judges um, and perhaps sort of, you know, intimidation of them. Um, I mean, if they feel that their face is going to be on the telly, um, it does that somehow inhibit them. Um, I mean, it is a concern, but I think these things have to be balanced against each other in terms of their benefit and cost. Uh, Marie, is there, is there something in that, this idea that broadcasting the sentencing remarks, at least, will remind um, people that it is often more complicated than it might look? that just life in general, the law in general. Because it, it is something I have observed in my, my years of living among the British, though I, I can't claim that Australians are immune from this either, is that the, the general reaction, certainly the online reaction to um, basically any conviction for the most trivial crime is that the person thus convicted should be probably drawn, courted, beheaded and the remains locked <laughs> up and the key thrown ceremoniously away. Would it help this perhaps take uh, encourage people to take a more nuanced view of justice? Huh. And I, I would hope so, because I do think I, I've seen it with so many court cases, especially on Twitter. And I'd like to think that I actually kind of, you know, I'm in quite a nerdy, on the nerdier end of the bubble on social <laughs> media. But still, yeah, the amount of, you know, kind of decisions coming out um, and people, you know, 
criticising them hugely and then, you know, a few sort of like people, normally barristers, um, kind of, you know, meekly tweeting saying, but, you know, actually, if you would read what happened, like, there's a link here, you can actually read, like, it will make a lot more sense. So I do think that everyone, and I'm sure I've done it as well, it's very easy to look at sentencing and just have an opinion. So I think forcing that, putting into context, especially if it's going, I think the purpose of it is to show it um, on the news, on telly. I think having, you know, being able to have that segment of, I don't know, even sort of you know, 30, 40 seconds of the judge kind of explaining something, I, I would hope would help. But, um, but as Alex has said, I do think that there is one concern about the safety of judges, especially, you know, looking at the kind of, um, uh, you know, the headlines I think we've had over the past few years. So I think enemies of the people being the obvious example. Um, we do live in very sort of like polarised times. Uh, so whether that's actually going to be a worry or not, I'm not sure. I, I'd like to think it will not be, but I do think that it, yeah, it, it may end up being a problem further down the line. Now, Alex, what, what do we make um, of the restrictions that so far at least are going to govern this development? Because uh, as you were noting earlier, it will just be the judges on camera. There won't be the victims, no jurors, no witnesses, no lawyers and so forth. Are they taking this slowly? I think they at, are. At almost Vatican speed, in fact. <laughs> yeah, almost Vatican speed. I think it's... Um... It's it's a cautious move, and I think it's probably right to be a cautious move for exactly the reasons we've been discussing. If there is a kind of backlash to this, if there is trouble, if it does get difficult, I think they want to be able to move back from that. And I think that's quite difficult if you've gone the whole way um, to then reel it in. I think it's easier to bring it out bit by bit. Um, I think there's also, you know, quite serious... And, I mean, we already are in a situation where in high-profile trials people will... You know, there will be banks of photographers outside taking mm. pictures. It is very hard to hide people's identity. It's already a problem. Um, it's a problem with the collapse of trials, of course, that sometimes, you know, when this, when people start expressing their opinions on social media, um, that this can be prejudicial, all sorts of, you know, it, it's already a problem having the general public giving their opinion and getting involved. So I think it's kind of wise actually to limit that. Um, is there a worry, uh, though, Marie, that we we may end up um, in eventually in a situation similar to the United States, or maybe you're massively in favour of it? I don't know. Um, Alex mentioned earlier the obvious nay plus ultra of this, which was the the trial of O.J. Simpson, circa. I should know this because I was in America at the time, 1995, I guess, which was just an extraordinary, absurd media circus. And I, I can remember feeling personally that this doesn't seem like how justice could should work when I was in an like a bar in New York City at lunchtime rammed full of people who'd come in off the street to hear the verdict. I just thought this seem, this would seem a convivial atmosphere for, I don't know, a key sporting fixture, but mm. this is a murder trial. This all seems a bit weird. I don't. I mean, I have to say I was a child when that happened, so I didn't really have any sort of like particular memories that I could <laughs> share to, uh, to back up my opinion. Um, I, I doubt it will happen. I do think there's a slight cultural difference as well. Like I don't I don't actually I can't really picture sort of like British the great British people kind of turning up in pubs watching murder trials. So I, I don't really think it would happen. But also I think what's been quite interesting about the move is that everyone broadly seems to be quite happy with it. So I was, you know, sort of like reading about it and actually most, you know, people in politics and on the law side seemed happy. I don't think it would be in anyone's interest right now to change that or even the next sort of like few years. So again, I don't 
I don't really think that's something we have to worry about for the next few years. And again, you know, it's maybe a cliche thing to say, but the UK is going to have to deal with so much stuff over the next few years. So I think that I'm not sure how much bandwidth there will be for <laughs> other issues anyway over the next like five to even ten years. Well, moving seamlessly along to that so much stuff that the UK is going to have to deal with, uh, we should look finally on today's news panel at the further evidence that if the United Kingdom were a person, its younger relatives would have hidden its car keys and started putting their initials on the valuables. <laughs> Britain's discourse of recent days has been consumed to a disconcerting extent by a debate on whether the moment of Brexit, a little over 15 days from now, should be marked with the tolling of Big Ben, the bell in Elizabeth Tower at the Palace of Westminster. Because the bell is currently being restored, this would necessitate a temporary restoration of the clapper at an estimated cost of half a million quid. A noisy cohort of the insane believe this would be money well spent. Um, Alex, I, regular listeners to Monocle 24 will probably be broadly aware of our general view where Brexit is concerned, but that we probably aren't going to regard Friday week as a, a moment for... Friday week? Friday two weeks as a moment for celebration. But even if is what strikes me about this. Even if you were somebody who was passionately invested in Brexit and passionately excited about it's happening and our delivery to the sunlit uplands of whatever, why would you care about this? I think it's got an odd thing, isn't it? It seems, you know, there's a lot that I would care about in Brexit more than this if I was a big Almost Brexiteer. all of it, surely. Everything. Everything yeah. else would seem to me more important. At the same time, I do think, you know, I mean, actually, I... I now, this is going to be an unusual thing for me to say because I, I am a Remainer and I'm in line generally with the principles of uh, this station on that. Um, but actually, I think if they want to have a party, that's fine by me. You know, I, I don't think kind of... I think it's, Remainers need to be a bit careful not to be seen as, you know, stopping that because it's quite petty to stop it. Just Indeed. It's quite pe petty to uh, perhaps have it in the first place. But honestly, I think they should be allowed to have their party. If somebody does want to raise half a million quid to do this, I think that's fine. I don't really think it's a brilliant use of taxpayers' money, but actually that is what the Prime Minister has said. Um, that, you know, there's this attempt to raise it privately, I suppose. And, you know, if, if that's what people want to spend their money on, then I suppose they're entitled to do so. Um, I think it's a difficult thing from the point of view of any future relationship with the European Union to look very celebratory about the moment of leaving. And it's obviously a difficult thing in the country at large as well, which is still heavily divided on this issue. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's perhaps when there should be some celebrations uh, is when they make such a wonderful success of Brexit. Uh, if, once there's something to celebrate, perhaps we can all join in. But, Marie, is there is there something about this particular flap about Big Ben which has been indicative of Brexit as a whole. I mean, I, I, I think Alex is entirely right. If people who have worked and campaigned and yearned for this moment for a long time want to celebrate finally getting it, fine. I, I can't see why anybody would, would object to that. But is there something telling in the fact that certain cheerleaders for the Brexit cause, instead of organising their massive party and massive celebration, have chosen to fixate with morbid obsessivity? Is that even a word? You know what I'm saying. <laughs> have chosen to fixate morbidly on the one thing they can't have, that they are being thwarted from having by, I don't know, whoever has been thwarting them. Well, I do think there's two things. The first one, and it's terrible, I'm going to actually agree with Alex, but um, I do think if you're actually a very committed Brexiteer and you were very happy on, you know, the 24th of June, mm. uh, 26th in the morning, then, you know, Brexit has now been delayed several times, so I can actually sort of understand the obsession of being like, you know what, it can be anything, it just has to be a symbol of this is finally happening. But equally, so I, I think, you know, I, I sort of agree with your point in that 
I think, and, and that's Remainers and Brexiteers, I think, have been so used to jumping at anything to be at each other's throats consistently for the past, like, three and a half years um, that it has just become a habit. So I do think that actually the Brexiteers <laughs> are still very much in that mindset of anything that happens has got to be a fight. You know, we've got to feel the most strongly about this than we've ever felt about anything. Um, it is just a mindset, which, again, I think the Remainers have as well because the second that started, you obviously had the other side saying, you're all idiots, this country has gone to the dogs, what's going on? So I think that is just, again, kind of nearly Pavlovian at this point. Anything about Brexit, you've got to take your side and go in the trenches and start shooting. Um, Alex, that, that does sound like an uncannily accurate diagnosis because it is weird. It has just now occurred to me how incredible it is to think of the parallel discourse in which you might have had. Brexit is saying, we'd quite like Big Ben to toll on the moment and being told, well, the bell's being restored, it'll cost a fortune, it'll be a whole thing, but you could do something else. And the Brexit is going, ah, yeah, all right, that seems fair, fine, we'll just think. How far do you think we are as a nation from getting anywhere near a point again at which that sort of conversation can be had? Well, I mean... I think it's going to be a huge challenge, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem, I mean, as as Maria said, it doesn't seem to be ramping down at all. People are still very much in this kind of fight or flight mindset. I mean, I suppose I think a lot will depend on what happens this year. Um, And the two crucial dates are kind of at the end of July and at the end of December, you know, the potential date for any kind of delay. And then at the end of December at the moment, the uh, date for actually leaving um, because of course what's going to happen really on the on the 31st of January is just a sort of you know the EU laws will still apply in the morning of February and of course you'll have lots of people skipping around going look look nothing's changed it was all nonsense it was all you know what a load of nonsense you've all been saying for the last couple of years and there'll be other people just as angry that we haven't already started rounding up Latvians yes absolutely there will um, and I mean you know there'll be a lot of misapprehension about it generally I mean actually nothing's really very likely to change until December um, because that's when the you know the transition period is kind of over theoretically and we move into whatever the new phase is which we don't currently know what it is so I mean there is you know Boris Johnson has a very large majority he now has um, a year really to see whether he can pull people together and get them behind this project we know that they are employing certain strategies like they all want to stop talking about the word Brexit on the 31st of January I wish them luck with that but I think that's going to be quite tricky I think that word is now so embedded in our national consciousness that it's going to be quite hard to wean people off it but you know that's what they're going to try to do is to move it into a different phase I think it is tricky unless they can come up with some sort of deal that perhaps should have been the case all along that was quite soft and satisfies most people in the middle or at least shall we say annoys everybody equally on the fringes Alex von Tunzelman and Marie Leconte, thank you both very much for joining us. In a moment, we will hear more about why journalists need to up their standards rather than merely reporting social media outrage. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Finally today, let's continue with a view from Monocle's editorial floor, looking at why we should perhaps take a somewhat standoffish view of media coverage of social media outrage. On Monday night, US actor Vince Vaughan was spotted shaking Donald Trump's hand at a college football game. These are two of the ensuing headlines. From The Guardian, uproar after Vince Vaughan shakes Trump's hand at football game. And from Vox Media, Fox News goes to desperate lengths to try to gin up outrage over a clip of Vince Vaughan chatting with Trump. This is the perfect example of why you should be outraged over the media's coverage of outrage. Firstly, many journalists are over-reliant on Twitter. 
Type in Vince Vaughan and Trump, and of course you're liable to find someone somewhere tweeting their outrage over the encounter. Frankly, it's lazy reporting. Second, some outlets have become obsessed with writing about backlash, uproar, outrage, feuds. Another such Guardian headline yesterday morning. Stephen King faces backlash over comments on Oscars diversity. I don't mean to suggest we should never be outraged, but as journalists, we need a higher standard. It's easy to write a knee-jerk reaction story about uproar. It's far harder to explain why. Take Stephen King, who wrote of the Oscars that he would never consider diversity when it comes to matters of art. He might be wrong, but isn't it worth hearing what he actually means by that? It would be better to read an article about why he's wrong or right than whether there was a backlash or not. That was Monocle's Tom Edwards, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View is produced by Daniel Bache and researched by Nick Toomey. Our studio managers were Louis Allen and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist. Monocle's House View returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening.